this is a conversation that I had with a friend that I know as Vintage Buds. I've spoken to Vintage Buds on the podcast, on the Chillinoy podcast in the past. If you'd like to check out those conversations, they're great ones. And there's a reason his name is Vintage Buds, and it's because he's seen, he's witnessed the history of cannabis, not only in Illinois, but in this nation. And so if you'd like to hear some crazy tales, I encourage you to check out episode number 79 and episode number 85 of the Chillinois podcast. Folks, in this episode, we're going to be talking about our thoughts on cannabis and nuclear energy. Enjoy this episode, which the first half is audio for our listeners. The second half of the conversation, the better half, if I might say so myself, uh, and I don't mean that in, in quality, and I mean that in terms of quantity. I think the larger portion of this conversation does include moments of video. And so if you're listening to this right now, um, well, it may feel incomplete without the visual aid. So I just wanted to say that at the top of the episode, you can expect uh, maybe the greater half, the end half of this episode uh, to be in video, for lack of better words. I hope you find as much value in this conversation as I did. Enjoy the episode. Okay, we are hot. We are radioactive. Oh, um, the the We're recording. Buds, hey. welcome back to the show. How's it going, dude? Well, not too bad. It's been a while, but uh, I've been listening and enjoying the show, and uh, well, here we are again. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that, first of all, and thank you for setting aside time in your day. Um, you know, I've got, I know you have many different ways you could spend your time, many different ways. And we'll talk about those things possibly today, radios, mm -hmm. nuclear stuff, all, all of that different, those different <laughs> types of things. But, um, for folks that may not remember you from our early episodes, first of all, I'm just going to say, go back and check them out. If you're looking through the Chillinois podcast, uh, library, look at the episodes featuring vintage buds. If you're looking for some not only great stories, but just a, a taste of cannabis history. Um, and I would even add that while we added to cannabis history, we've also talked about some things that are going on today, which, uh, I mean, I guess we can just breach that irradiation and cannabis, right? Right. Cannabis is being irradiated. And so that's something we've talked about, uh, on the show in the past. Mm hmm. So anyways, though, I just wanted to give background for folks. Why don't you go ahead and, uh, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> oh man, that's making a lot of noise. It's okay. It's that, okay. That's we're, some, some color in the noise. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, we've got a lot of documents here, folks. So if you're listening to the show, uh, there will be, um, parts of this episode that may have like short, uh, video clips to show something or short images, um, again, to maybe show something that we're looking at. But for the most part, today's podcast will be audio only. So, uh, Buds, I've been talking for, it looks like about two minutes now. Uh, reintroduce yourself to our audience. How would you yeah. introduce yourself to the Chillinois podcast? <laughs> well, I, I've been doing cannabis stuff for a long time. <laughs> I went to my first normal rally in 1975 in Omaha, Nebraska. And I was 
introduced closer to you. Yeah, I was introduced to cannabis in Germany because my father was in the military, and let's put it this way: that's what they have over there. That all they had at the time, basically, really couldn't find any cannabis flower per se, but they had all kinds of good hash. Nice. <laughs> so, and uh, I finished high school and got a job for a year or so before I came back here to go to school. So basically, uh, that's where I kind of got introduced to cannabis, a little different than most people in the U.S., but not that different from a lot of people overseas. Um, certainly, this was a time when it was awful hard to find good cannabis. Uh, so I was always interested in growing, which I first grew in 1975, actually, in Champaign County, a very unsuccessful <laughs> grow out in the weeds uh, somewhere. Uh, it'll remain nameless because there's no point in naming something that didn't turn out with anything. But uh, it took a while for me to really get going. It was a paraquat scare there in the late 70s that uh, got me growing indoors. Yeah. And... Uh, I went on from there and uh, grew some commercially, grew a lot, turned into more medical than anything. And uh, in fact, my own conditions used to treat that quite a bit. And, uh, but it's one of these things where I've had a lot of experience with it and beyond just the usual experiences of being a customer and a small time hustler, <laughs> sort of medium, very medium sized grower uh, is, the fact that uh, I've also done a lot of uh, activism. Like I said, I went to a rally very early on. I've always been very political about cannabis to the extent that I can. I was very involved in um, the uh, Hash Wednesday <laughs> crowd yes. in the early 80s here on campus at the U of I. Uh, I was just an outside agitator then. But, and people uh, should Google that. Yeah, they should. There was some uh, pretty wild scenes there for a while, and uh, but we we definitely helped push the the conversation further forward. There are a number of rather interesting people in the movement that uh, started off here at the U of I, and we had early on people like Jack Herrera came through, and in fact, a lot of the info in Jack's book was shown to him by my buddy Josh, who was head of the normal chapter on campus here. And I, Josh didn't get credit for that. Uh, so to, just just to make a note of that, yeah. Jack Jack wasn't really good with citing all his sources, but you know he, he wasn't an academic either. But I uh, just wanted to make sure my buddy Josh got credit for that because uh, he certainly deserves it. But he got him where the right spot was in the U of I archives to talk about cannabis here in a, a very historical way. So we contributed that, but also several. Debbie Goldsberry, I think, is one person who's gone to the West Coast and moved up the movement and several other people. Uh, gosh, there's a couple of people I'm thinking of. That were, uh, I can't remember the names right now, but uh, they'll come to me anyway. Maybe, and I'll bring them up later. But uh, these are people that uh, were national level. In fact, somebody was just remarking the other day, they were talking about uh, Dennis Perone. Well, Dennis Perone came through here in about 88, 89, really? something like that. Yeah, yeah. The, this is a pop quiz for me. Is Dennis, uh, I'll try to, is he like involved very early on kind of with the AIDS he, movement? And, is he, that right? Yeah, he was the guy that basically kind of came up with the idea of, well, it's medical. We should be making it available to people. And just as a concept of 
normalizing cannabis. I think that was a very important breakthrough. And uh, uh, Dennis was basically the guy that, that took the heat, got busted for it, various other things. But he was the sort of the founding father of the Bay Area medical cannabis movement. So uh, a guy who's very important, you know, nationally also, because it's something that uh, has made a big difference in the legalization of cannabis yeah. in a practical terms. You know, how do you get from point A to point B? Well, you go through medical cannabis first. Right. So, um, but we, we had, um, I mean, the normal uh, management sort of uh, crew and stuff, they came through on a yearly basis. Josh is pretty good about getting people through here. I met Ed Rosenthal here. That was one of the later folks that came through. Uh, so things were happening on this campus anyway, and uh, I did my best to help, <laughs> not so much organize them at the time, but supply the party, let's put it that way, <laughs> nice. uh, and made sure that that, that, that happened because uh, there wasn't a lot of money involved, but there was a lot of good volunteer efforts, and, and that always deserves support. So, But, yeah, I kind of got myself in a little trouble due to no particular failing of my own it's just that sometimes things happen and that's what happened to me and shut down my garden for a number of years which was troublesome because i've got one syndrome but several other syndromes also that are very much aided by cannabis yeah and, and we so, don't have to get too specific but just yes. general timeline uh when did this occur yeah, not this, close to legalization right no it wasn't unfortunately, unfortunately uh, right. Da dan lynn was was executive director of uh, state normal at that time i believe and he was very helpful in suggesting a couple of things that got me to a doctor who made a recommendation that helped with the sentencing and eventually i got uh, a guy to give me dronabinol which is basically your generic version of THC, mm. okay, and uh, Marinol is a trade name for it anyway, mm -hmm. but yeah. he gave that to me, a uh, script for that. It's very expensive. I think we were running 1200 to 2000 bucks a month Damn. for, what was it, two 10-milligram capsules a day, I think, was all it amounted to. So it was, sorry, yeah, it was right. really, it was really very little, but it was like very much appreciated because I was almost found it almost impossible to sleep with uh, this, this stuff in my back and everything. And uh, so we got that reoriented. And eventually, I mean, this was the late aughts, basically. So we're, we're still 10 years almost away from even medical legalization, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, but I managed, I guess you could say. But I was part of that weight on the system. You know, it's like, what's it proved to send me to jail or even prosecute me other than the state is wasting resources on this especially sick people uh, but you know people in general and so eventually the state came around and we are where we are now and I mean we can kind of laugh at it and it's kind of sad in its own way though that uh, there's still a lot of people out there that would like to bring back those days or worse <laughs> so yeah we have to remember that keep that in mind yeah yeah yeah, well, it's crazy. Uh, I definitely want to maybe uh, rehash some of the history, but today we'll be talking about nuclear energy as well, which is mm -hmm. something that, that uh, as I mentioned, you're you're super familiar with. Uh, before we get into that, I just yes. wanted to ask a, a few things, just to because sure. 
like, yeah, you, you have really seen history. So I've got to take advantage and ask, you know, about your perspective. First of all, you brought up the Paraquat scare, which you have <laughs> given, like you've told us about that in the past, but right. I think it's really, really, really important to remind people about oh, what yeah. that was, who caused it. Yeah. Well, this was under good old Jimmy Carter, who was pretty good president in a lot of ways, but he had his certain failings. And the DEA, what they basically wanted to do was to go to the source and lay down Paraquat on the fields. Which Paraquat is? It is a, uh, uh, thinking for the right technical word, but it's a weed killer. It's a weed poisoning, uh, herbicide. Herbicide is what I'm looking for. And the uh, only thing is, is it also has some relationships to certain other uh, contaminants in, uh, like Agent Orange, for instance. It's, mm. Yeah, it's it's not good stuff. Let's put it this way. Yeah, I was looking up what they, they call it, a chem- chemical compound, uh, like you say, an herbicide. Yeah, herbicide. And uh, it's not what you want to smoke anyway, that's for sure. The whole idea being that they could bomb a few of these fields with this stuff, kill it off, Probably couldn't kill it all, but could at least scare enough people that it would hurt the market. I don't know. I guess that was the theory, but isn't that that's just I want to dwell on that for a yes. moment though. That's what I thought was so crazy. And I didn't actually get the depth of it the first time you told me until mm-hmm. I saw it on a documentary. I was like, Paraquat, Paraquat, why does that sound fun? Oh, yeah. Buds was saying that. That's right. And but I didn't I, like if you think about it, that is the government poison poisoning yes it's people basically unashamedly saying oh we don't care (laughs) yeah so i think it's important not to only dwell on the fact that they would throw you in a cage or throw others in a cage but they would try to poison you and something you were consuming kind of vermin yeah you know if you think about it it's it's really it's disturbing let's put it this way well basically what happened is they didn't succeed very well, but they did inspire a lot of people to start growing themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so it was about this time that you really saw an explosion in advertising for grow uh, hardware, grow aids, whatever you want to call them in high times. You know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's people that, hey, I need to get some of that stuff. I'll do it my own way. Don't have to worry about anybody poisoning it with Paraquat. And, uh, in fact, that's pretty much what happened was all these plots by the government that they somehow think, well, A to B to C, and we got the problem solved, usually doesn't work that way because they try to pretend that the market demand isn't there, mm-hmm. that people are going to go away. And, no, it just inspires people to be more efficient, be more effective, that sort of thing, you know. Um, so that got me solidly into growing and uh, I pretty much grew from there till went to live with a, a companion and she she had some concerns about such things that I was agreeable with going along and <laughs> yeah. I had kind of a stash build up for a while there anyway and uh, but there for about six seven years it was pretty steady growing and then that came along and so during that time it was encouraged to get high in your own supply because I'm just trying yeah. to make a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you yeah. knew what it was, right? That's right. You knew what it was. And yeah. and that was that's what's got a lot of people thinking about growing one way or the other, whether it was just for themselves and their own health or whether it was, hey, I can make some money at Is this. It, and that's something to dwell on, too. Isn't it crazy yes. how time and time again the government's efforts hasn't caused people to disengage, actually to engage further? 
deeper. That's why, I mean, they've got these policy initiatives they put out, but they are so half-baked. Not the best way. Is it any surprise we are where we're at, where dope is cheaper, more deadly, and more available than it's ever been, despite billions and billions of dollars being spent on this? This is why. The government is great at coming up with punitive ideas, but they're not so good at coming up with ideas that actually work. In fact, what they tend to do is make the problem worse. And really, if you want to know why kids are dying of fentanyl, it's the government. Right. And government policies. And uh, there's ways around that, but we got to get outside this box that we've thought ourselves into. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll do anything. The drugs are so bad, it's worth taking any risk, doing any stupid thing just in hopes that it'll... No, it's not. Right. <laughs> and that kind of attitude is really... A large part of the problem yeah <laughs> yeah that's a big one there i, I want to go down that one but that's that's a big conversation yeah. uh, but, but i think to put it shortly yeah we should legalize drugs because yeah. Yeah. if you know what you're consuming which that's the issue right now right. you don't and then some of these people who are just trying to make a buck cut it with fentanyl and yeah. that's a bad recipe for disaster uh mm-hmm. Really quick, again, just mm-hmm. to kind of open this with a little repace of history. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, billions of dollars are being made. I think last year it was $1.6 billion in adult use sales. Mm-hmm. It is important to compare that to Michigan, which was $1.8 billion <laughs> in cannabis sales. Many people point to Michigan as a failure because they have so many licenses, right? Yeah, only the folks that don't want everybody to have a license that wants one uh-huh. feel that way, as far as I can tell. Yeah. But they make a lot of noise. Yeah, they do. They do. And <laughs> like you say, it's only the, the people that are that would be faced with that competition that are complaining. You yeah. know who you don't hear complaining is yeah. consumers in that market. That's right. Who have a, have a choice between competition, you know, healthy competition. Yeah. Uh, it, anyways, though, um, I wanted to to ask about the state of where we are today. Um, you know, you mentioned you started this before the cannabis control act of 1978, which Mm -hmm. for folks that are listening and don't know, it is what established the original set of graduated penalties for cannabis. So Mm -hmm. to put it shortly, you have this much, you get in this much trouble. You have this much, a larger amount you get in this much trouble. It goes, it gets bigger as you go again to put it kind of shortly i wanted to ask you a lot of those policies actually a majority i would argue are still in effect today post legalization i say in air quotes what how do you feel about that as somebody who (laughs) has been uh, subject to these policies i mean you could literally get in trouble for those same things today and nothing's changed yeah well what those are about is is making a number on a scale represent intent because yeah. in our legal system you have to have not only opportunity to commit a crime but you have to have criminal intent well they never really question that when it comes to drugs they just say well if you have so much that shows True. what you intend to do with True. it and it's like i might have a pound of reefer but I'm not necessarily going to go out and be selling it to kids at the playground or anything. I mean, for the most part, not. People don't do that sort of thing. And and it's really kind of ridiculous. I mean, because the whole thing is set up to just sort of make sure that the cops still 
have plenty to do when it comes to cannabis. And that's yeah. part of the problem here. And, I, you know, here's an observation, too, because Minnesota recently legalized. And guess what the limit is there for individual possession? Two pounds. Yeah, weird. Well, not so weird if you take into consideration two words. George Floyd. Okay. Up, up there, they've done a lot of thinking about that. I'm not sure they got all the answers to all the questions and got all the right thoughts yet. But I think what that was clearly about was the legislature saying, you know, the cops don't need to be involved yes. in all this. Yes. I mean, we have alcohol, which is a far more dangerous substance. Do we have cops involved in like counting how many beers you have left in your six pack? No, they're just worried about whether you're intoxicated or not. And of course, that's a little harder to tell with cannabis. But if you have a hard time telling somebody's intoxicated, that's probably <laughs> a pretty good sign they're not really that intoxicated, right. or at least in a legal sense, in the <laughs> sense that, you know, that they're making really bad, stupid decisions. So we really have to get away from both the alcohol model being applied to cannabis and then even that going far beyond that model in terms of its severity and stuff and the assumptions it makes about what you have, depending upon what you have in your bag. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, cops want to, you know, come up with some thing about dealing and dealing is still illegal unless you're one of the big weed or somebody with a craft license or whatever. Well, that's, that's fine. Uh, but you know, it's one of these things where people, the, the cops are not serving any good purpose by being that involved in cannabis. That's why we have taxes being paid on it. It's to sort of push that and we have more taxes than anybody being paid on it. So if that ain't working, having the cops involved is, is probably just a dumb idea. We really need to get away from writing laws that satisfy the police. And even worse, satisfy the police and satisfy certain elements of the corporate community who yes. have been very, very blessed by the way legislation has been written. This calls into question, of course, in Illinois, given our long history of corruption and bad government and just dumb policy making, why we end up here again. And it's time to start getting out from under this because... You know, it serves no good except for the profit margins of certain businesses and the campaign accounts of certain politicians. And those do not represent good public policy. Very well said. And I want to cl clarify, I said weird on the two pounds. I agree with the two pounds because that's yeah. like 907 grams. Yeah. Hey, that's good stuff. Um, but I just thought it was like a... Uh, an arbitrary uh, but agreeable number yes. to set. Yeah. Um, my thing is, it's funny. I quote you all the time. <laughs> Here's what I say, and I want you to make. I want you to clarify or uh -huh. add to this. I say cannabis is not legal. You, know, you probably know what I'm about to say because yeah. you've said it. Uh, until you can grow, possess, use as much as you want, need, or please. Maybe I used yeah. a few. Pretty close. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's that's certainly the way the case is. I mean this. Somehow we have to supervise every little bit of cannabis. Well, this is also why we have such a complicated and costly tracking system. Does this serve much good any longer? Now, it may have served some good early on when it was only the medical program. Yeah, and you're like trying to prove that you can handle it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I guess. It, it, now it proves nothing except that we can waste a lot of money on stuff that has very marginal public benefit and i've been asking that question lately like 
if on one hand it seems like we're saying cannabis is safe, you, you know, it's safer yeah. than alcohol, cigarettes and all this yeah. stuff and it should be legal and people should not go to jail. But on the other hand, we're like, but <laughs> we need to track it. We need yeah. to make sure that it like blah, 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 you know? Yeah. And like you say, it's certainly agreeable. Like maybe if you want to sell it on a wide scale, okay. Licensing. But the answer, uh, just to wrap this kind of topic up, I think is never to, to criminalize. Yeah. It would maybe perhaps be a citation. And I, I guess to put a balloon on that, I like to use a, a recent example. Did you see the thing about the transporter license or the transporter yeah. lawsuit lately? Yeah. I, I got real mixed feelings on that. I certainly, uh, have a lot of sympathy for folks that went out, followed the rules, right. invested in equipment that, you know, was going to be required. And then they've got nothing from the state. Here's, I think it's a good example to put a bow on this topic. If they get what they want, which is citations to be issued because mm -hmm. illegal transportation happened, yeah, that's all that would happen. Citations that's would be right. issued. If you did that, if we loaded up your vehicle, be in a heap of trouble. And I mean, if we were able to figure out how to do that, you know, bring it to a cannabis dispensary, yeah. we are. It's not that we're. I mean, we are unlicensed. They were like in a weird state where I guess maybe they were provisionally licensed. Yeah. Anyways, the point is, I'm trying to point out the contrast. One group of people would get a citation yeah. for, you know, the licensees versus another group, the citizens, yeah. would be thrown in a cage. That's right. It's pretty crazy, the contrast. Well, if you think about it, where have we seen this before in American history, where the government has enforced property rights that run directly against human rights. That's slavery. Yeah. And there's a lot of aspects of this, you know, I mean, because there's a lot of people that talk about social equity a lot and, you know, it's got various aspects to it, but when we maintain policies like this, we are basically paralleling the, the, the public policy schemes that were used Yes, got an escaped slave. We'll help capture and return them to their masters. Blah blah blah. You know, I mean, Plessy versus Ferguson, all kinds of different things. You know, dumb dumb decisions that came out of that. I mean, if we look back at them now, well, we can look at these right now and say they're dumb dumb decisions that were yeah, in this. Yeah, I've been asking that, like, and I've been wondering that, like, if we're trying to address social equity, wouldn't that start with ending the policies that started right. the cycle in the first place? That's right. And it just seems like you say, it's like on parallel, we have this public policy, but we're continuing the cycle. It's like the cycle continues and mm -hmm. so does the need for social equity. Yeah. I wanted to, this brings me, that kind of wraps up that topic. I wanted mm -hmm. to, before we go to uh, nuclear energy and stuff, you brought yeah. up uh, Dennis and social equity. And I, uh, one of my friends, uh, his name's Philip. He comes on the show sometimes. Uh -huh. He recently, and maybe he's even said it on the show, but he asked me about, you know, social equity and he made a really interesting pitch. It's funny you bring up Dennis. He was like, he thought maybe like LGBTQ should be involved or included yes. because yes. they, well, that was an essential you know? part of what was going on in the Bay area. I mean, that was, it may seem like something that you have to remark upon outside of the Bay area, but for people in the Bay area, that was just a given. I mean, uh -huh. that, that was a. A powerful force already and made more powerful by the you know the AIDS crisis basically and that's what they were fighting against was the AIDS crisis then in the late 80s things were not going so well in the AIDS crisis and this was one of the bright spots this was something that would keep people alive literally yeah and that was something more than what 
the forces of medicine, science, and research were able to accomplish at the time. And so. I realize what I'm proposing would be maybe hard to write into a state application, you know, because the, uh -huh. the application to, to qualify for social equity, you either are charged with a cannabis crime, you live in uh -huh. a disproportionately impacted area, yeah. or you know, you, you know, you're working with somebody that uh, yeah. catches one of those criteria. And they've added some, like if you're a victim of gun violence or whatever, but uh -huh. I feel like I, I'm not saying it's not still a solid proposal that LGBTQ should be a part of it, but I do, I want to acknowledge that maybe it's hard. Like, how do you prove that? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just saying that we should rethink our definition of who qualifies for that. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying I don't agree with providing funding for those people and ensuring their success, I suppose, yeah. uh, because they have been disadvantaged, but it's like, maybe we should expand that definition. Yeah. Well, you know, here in Illinois, I, I, I think a lot of that's flown under the radar because we haven't had those sorts of dramatic community-wide issues that were much more obvious, obviously, in California, the yeah. Bay Area and places like that. But nonetheless, they still existed here, I mm -hmm. can tell you. I mean, you know, I had friends that were gay, pot smokers, Back yeah. then, you know, I mean, it's, it's, wasn't that unusual. It is part of that culture. That's so, right. Part you know. of that culture. And, uh, I, I, think, I love it. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, they should be acknowledged when it comes to programs that, that aid people, you know, uh, to a certain degree there, there should be something for everybody there really in a, in a certain sense, except for people who obviously don't need it, which is most of the people that hold the licenses right now. Yeah. So. And so before we get to nuclear energy, I've got mm -hmm. one more that I, you don't have to comment on, but I think you're uh -huh. going to want to, cause this is kind of cool to hear. Uh -huh. Um, I heard from somebody who worked with Dan Lynn as, as early as 2002, 2003, that uh -huh. he's called what is happening today. Yeah. He said, these people, okay, so legalization yeah. is going to become a push in Illinois. Yeah. And what these people are going to push for is a, is a market that's limited and and they are going to artificially keep the prices up, keep competition out. Um, and it, apparently he was calling this as early as 2002 or 2003. I just got to give him credit where credit's due. I, I would believe it because Dan was, from my talking to him, I mean, I can't speak that early in terms of that person's specific comment sure. there. But I do know that time I bumped into Dan, uh, you know, certainly he had a fully formed view of how things like that were going. And I think he was pretty much right. And I mean, the irony there is people like him did the heavy lifting and then people danced in with their lawyers and took advantage of it because that smoky back room effect that we have here. It's, yeah. it wasn't because of, because I hear comments sometimes about, oh, those activists let us down. They got things legalized and then look where it ended up. And it's like, they did the best they can. They right. have to have the public out there pushing behind them because that's what we have is the numbers. We don't have the money. We got the numbers. But the other side definitely has the money. <laughs> Thank you. And you know what? That might be a good thing to end on with, with regard to these topics yes. because I have been asking, I've had a lot of the advocates on involved for the, with the recent push. Yes. And I'm not saying they're not pushing for things we agree on, but what I have been asking them is go to the dispensary and ask if any people that are shopping there are aware of what you're pushing for. That's yeah. a challenge. Yeah. I bet you most people on the subreddit don't know that they're pushing for craft canopy expansion, that they need right. co-location. Like, mm -hmm. And how do you make it resonate with somebody like yes. that? Well, 
I don't know if you saw that the Illinois craft growers came on, but their number one proposal mm-hmm. was right to grow. And that just triggered me because yeah. they have the right to grow. What they yeah. don't have is the right to expand their canopy yet yeah. without whatever they need to do that. Right. And so I was like, you should pair that proposal with the right to grow, which we don't have. Yes. So if, if you don't have the money, which they acknowledge, they do not have the money that all these big companies have to lobby. Yes. Okay. Well, like you just said, Let's let's bring it about the numbers then. Uh-huh. That's my last pitch for for our advocates and activists yeah. out there. How do you pair these industry proposals, which I know you need, yeah. with something that would actually bring about what Buds and I know is cannabis legalization? I feel like if you want the energy you had in 2019, that's how you got to do it. Yeah. Say, hey, it's not actually legal until it's legal, that's right? right? Type that's of thing. Absolutely right. For most most people in Illinois now. The only thing that's been legalized is your right to be a customer in a very narrow way Thank for you. a few co- companies that have been very blessed by the law. And as we've highlighted, that legal, like you just said, it's very narrow because the moment you get into your car, technically speaking, you're out of compliance with the law because it's not in an overproof yeah. container. The way, the way it's been written so far, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's, it's it crazy. But <laughs> anyways... Um, We've talked about nuclear energy and irradiation uh, mm-hmm. in, in the past, uh, specifically, uh, sorry, radiation. I meant to say we've specifically s- spoken about irradiation, which is a form of remediation for mm-hmm. cannabis. Um, we could talk about it, that today, but I kind of want to, I want to just talk about nuclear energy itself. And mm-hmm. if, if I could to start, sure. I recently saw a, a Okay, so we're back. We needed to get a drink. Um, wanted to talk about nuclear energy. Nuclear energy. I recently saw a piece in the media that basically, well, it made me want to re re speak with you, and it re- made me realize I've not gotten into the depth of nuclear energy with mm. you, or into the atoms, if you will. I don't know. I'm not good enough <laughs> to make a pun. I'm not smart enough about this subject to make puns yet. But um, I basically the the pitch this person was saying, and you might be familiar with this individual, Oliver Stone, a documentarian. Right, Oliver Stone, yes. Yeah, um, he made this documentary yet, which I admittedly have not seen. I was hoping to see it before we got together, but between Uh class and everything else I'm doing, it didn't happen. But I kind of heard his pitch, and he basically said that maybe as a society we don't really understand nuclear energy. And in fact, he took it a step further or they took it a step further in the conversation that I was watching that maybe in fact, kind of the comic book energy, uh, you know, the way that we describe it in mm. comic books and in media has really, uh, similar to cannabis kind of misinformed us, if you will, on nuclear energy. Uh-huh. And I, I'm curious, do you want to just start there before we, or huh. how do you want to start this conversation? Cause well, I, I haven't seen Oliver Stone's latest there got me curious now what exactly he is saying or the point he is trying to make. It sounds like to put it in a bottle, he's saying nuclear energy is good. We've been so bad. Yeah. It's not so bad. We've been led to believe that it is just a horrible option. (laughs) And it's like, well, maybe it might be the answer to our issues. Well, I I just happened to bump into, I'm trying to remember what the name of YouTube influencer she was just all up about how we've just been so misinformed about nuclear energy that you know we got enough what did she say atomic waste for 150 years worth of energy we just process it and stuff 
and she goes on and on about how great this all be, how easy it is, it's all proven technology, blah, blah, blah. She does finally slide up to the point then, and, and well, there's sort of one problem, though, is is there's this plutonium stuff in it. <laughs> well, yes, that is a problem, because plutonium is exactly what you need to make nuclear weapons with. Yeah. And anytime you process nuclear waste from your typical reactor, you're going to get plutonium, because plutonium is created in the process of the fission of uranium atoms, you create plutonium-239. And it is sort of intentional in some cases, for instance, when you have a breeder reactor that's set up specifically to produce plutonium, you don't have much of that anymore. That was sort of a Cold War thing. I mean, probably North Korea has one of these, probably. We're actually rebuilding some of ours because we think we need to do this for some dumb reason. Who knows about the Russians? They've probably been working at it, too. But it's one of those things where they've got all the weapons-grade plutonium they, they really need for a long, long time. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense other than, other than demonstrating we can do it still. But... Plutonium-239 is preferred to make nuclear weapons out of because if you make them out of uranium, when you go to assemble the pieces into a critical mass, it's more difficult to do that with uranium because uh, it tends to want to blow up and disassemble a lot easier. The way that the power curve happens to use very un. un physical <laughs> de descriptions because sure. I'm a... Uh, I, I deal a lot with science, but I don't always necessarily have exactly the terms in front of me anymore since I've gotten a little older, so bear with me. <laughs> but in the process, anyway, is you make this plutonium in all these reactors, and that's the problem, is is who is going to control that plutonium? Because basically, you're, you've got fissile material that you can easily make nuclear weapons with. And uh, so it's the sort of thing that... Yeah, you could make a lot of fuel out of it, but the control of some of the other byproducts needs has to be closely taken uh, by governments. And in fact, on a world basis, there are agreements not to do this because of this very problem. And that's where the U.S. by policy sits now, is we don't want to do this because of the fact that it does create fissile material that's easily accessible. And that's part of really the problem with the whole nuclear energy thing is is people are saying, well, this is financially viable. Well, it's never been financially vi viable. <laughs> nuclear energy, at least the peaceful uses, and of course the military uses, have always been subsidized by the taxpayer. Otherwise, nobody would do that. There's, mm -hmm. It's just not enough income from what they produce but what it is is something that the government wants very much in the case of nuclear weapons that's obvious peaceful use of nuclear energy it's not quite so obvious and really where that came about was in large part to sort of put a ribbon on everything else that, that <laughs> nuclear energy is and you know it's one of those things where yeah you could say that this is good stuff that it's doing but in the end you end up investing a lot of government resources in that i don't think anybody has ever been able to make the argument like this is a money-making proposal from beginning to end 
it's always dependent on government subsidies. And that's the very first thing that needs to be asked is how much are the taxpayers going to be paying for this privilege of yeah. being able to irradiate your, your reefer to remediate it, for instance. Okay. I mean, I'm sure the companies that, that sell that stuff have a price on it, but that price probably doesn't really reflect anything about anything except them making money off of it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't reflect what the true cost is. It certainly doesn't reflect what the cost to the environment is. Because these are operations that, although they've cleaned them up over the years, the mining of uranium is pretty dangerous because it gives off this stuff called radon, which is a gas that's radioactive and can be breathed in. And, uh, for instance, uh, a lot of the stuff that was mined in this country was down in uh, New Mexico and Arizona and uh, it was Native American miners who were the ones that suffered the most from this. You go into the mines and 10 years or so, people are dropping like flies because they've been breathing in this radon. And yeah, I was going to say, why does radon sound familiar to me? I'm not. It's because even in places where there's not uranium mining activity on, the soil, the underlying layers can give off enough radon that it's dangerous. So you have radon remediation in buildings here in Illinois, for instance. Yeah. And it's just certain areas just have the right geology, I guess is the, the thing to say. And if it's above a certain level indoors and you've tested and you know about this, then you really technically are legally supposed to both remediate it, which is they put in a fan that pulls it, and shoots it outside, so it keeps it ventilated, okay? Yeah. I shouldn't do that. It's okay. And uh, that's one thing. And the other thing is is that you just quit doing whatever it is you're doing, <laughs> which, of course, is not what the people who are wanting to remediate reefer with radiation want to do with it. They, they want to keep on doing that. Sure. Um, which is not to say that that is immediately in itself creates hazards. Uh, I mean, I don't want people to get the wrong idea here that they're breathing in radioactive dope and it's going to poison them or something. That's not the case. The, the radiation isn't in there. What it is, is it supports a system that's pretty dirty, inefficient, government subsidized. All the things we would criticize almost any other system for, for doing. And yet people are suggesting we overlook that big problem. Yeah. And I, I do, I feel bad about bringing up so when I just to, for more context, when I mm -hmm. saw this and I saw his perspective, I was like, you know, this is all great. But and I'm going to I haven't finished that that conversation yet. But I was like, I want to hear this from somebody I know that knows this stuff. So that's that is kind of what I came here today. I apologize for kind of starting it with that person's opinion on it, because but, but just to bring up other elements of their opinion. Well, and then I. One. Stone is somebody who I got a lot of respect for for a lot of reasons. I mean, over the years, he's done some great work. On this one, you know, like I said, I'm not quite sure where he was going with that, but it, I kind of yeah. imagine, based on where I've seen other celebrities lately, there's been a big push to improve the image of nuclear power because it, people see it as a way yes. out of global warming. That's what he was basically pitching. He was like, uh, he was saying that he's yeah. like, Oh, people are overstating like what happened in, uh, 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 God damn it. They made a, uh, HBO documentary Chernobyl? about it. 
Or the Fukushima plant? Well, he did say Fukushima, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think, yes, Chernobyl. He said that, yes, yeah. people died in Chernobyl, but that arguably is caused by a government that just sent them in without yeah. the proper, you know. Well. Uh, but, but the other thing, right. really quick, just to throw out a few mm-hmm. more points he made. He was like, you look, and I think these are probably some of the points you hear from these celebrities you're talk, talking about, where they'll be like, uh, okay, people want to say nuclear's dangerous. Well, let's talk about all the deaths caused by fossil, the fossil fuel industry and the current state of how we get those things, right? So they point yeah, that yeah, out. Yeah. And they're like, if you look at the number of people that have actually died from nuclear energy, they make that case. So I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, let's, let's actually, I was going to say, if you want to start there, uh, but I actually, the way I intended was to start with nuclear energy, but maybe it is more apropos to talk about some some of the current arguments for yes. and against it. And then maybe we can talk about history. I think that actually will work it, out pretty well. Work out. Yeah. Here I would say that basically, yeah, you can say that about those other things, but those are things that people engage in normally and naturally. Yeah. And, and Bud, sorry, you're uh, uh, talk to her. Yes. There you go. They happen to come along naturally to a certain extent, the, the, the processes and the, just the things that are involved with that. Yeah. Th- that's not the case with nuclear energy. We have to make the active choice to pursue that, mm-hmm. to seek the funding from the government to get that done. Various aspects of it are subsidized, but it's never, it's never a money-making proposition. And uh, I, I guess here, too, it's worthwhile considering what else is going on with reactors. Any reactor that's operating puts off something called iodine-131. This is another byproduct that uh, ends up in the fuel cells uh, from the the, um, fission reactions that's going on in there. And what it is, is this is a gas, 131 is, that can be deposited as crystals on vegetation and things like that. It gets out and it floats away from plants. Now, mostly they have these things fairly well sealed up nowadays, but this is also one of the ones that is a constant problem uh, because iodine-131 is also one of the ones that was used for intelligence purposes in conjunction with uh, Krypton-85. No, no, not, excuse me, Xenon-131. Think of another process there. Xenon-131. And this between the two of them, there's a 20-day half-life. So when these are created, when a bomb is set off, you have about 20 days to easily find samples from it. And all those samples will lead back to that certain date, which is how you tell the difference between the stuff floating around from a nuclear explosion versus... Uh, meltdown like at Chernobyl Mm -hmm. because at Chernobyl and other reactors you have these fuel rods in there and they've been running for a while so you have fuel that has all kinds of different start dates based on where it is in the reaction it's a real mix of things but when you have the instantaneous creation with the nuclear explosion that sets everything going at that date and all your samples kind of lead back to that spot if that that's yeah. very crude in terms of how you would teach high school chemistry. But that's basically how they tell the difference between the explosion from a reactor like Chernobyl and a, and a nuclear test of some kind or 
worse than nuclear war. So that's that's something that is very important, which means during the Cold War, the two things that were most secret were what? Things that have to do with intelligence and things that had to do with nuclear weapons. You put the two of them together, in other words, intelligence about nuclear weapons, yeah. it's super duper secret. And iodine-131 was a big part of that secret. That's what they were going around collecting, okay? So... This made the military real nervous just talking about this when it started coming up in the 50s because people were concerned about civilian exposures. And it was one of the ones that people latched onto because supposedly it has such a short half-life, about nine days, if I recall correctly, that, well, it goes up in the atmosphere, stays up there for a while, and just cools off. It's okay. Well not true <laughs> if you put enough of it up there it's going to come down you know you can take you know yeah it's diminishing all along but if there's enough of it up there you can still cause a lot of problems when it does come down and this became a problem uh, with a lot of the bigger test series in the late 50s and early 60s which basically ended up proving that you really can't have a very big nuclear war or everybody on the planet gets poisoned. That's the real secret to nuclear weapons is that we have thousands of them, but in practical terms, we don't want to use more than a relative handful of them. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody wins the war, uh, and it's clearly the case. And but So that's what really is one of the secrets behind the sensitivity about reactors being unsafe. Now they argue, well, the reactors are sealed up enough, that's processed, it doesn't get loose. Well, yeah, unless you have a reactor accident. Of course, like Chernobyl and Fukushima, and then you got that stuff going everywhere. But look at the reaction from just one reactor melting down. And... Yeah, what about if you think about it, thousands of reactors all melting down at once one day? <laughs> that tells you what a nuclear war would be like. And so people will say there's not much concern about that. Yeah, as, ever, as long as everything's going okay, there isn't. That does seem to be the, <laughs> the if I could put it on a line, it uh -huh. seems like, yeah, it's great. But if things go wrong, they go really wrong really, and there's really like wrong. that's right the time i mean it's your grandchildren's grandchildren aren't going to yes. live to see the end of this well mistake. plutonium half-life of plutonium well iodine-131 like i said is like nine days or something uh -huh. plutonium-239 the the main fissile material its half-life is it's either 24,000 or 26,000 some years so you're talking about a really long time and in fact if you're talking about the plutonium from all the testing that was done in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, before we mostly quit doing that, it's pretty much fresh plutonium. Yeah. <laughs> it's in little tiny pieces. It's out there scattered all over the place. Uh, but it nonetheless remains just as big a threat. If you get a little bit of that and inhale it, you're in trouble. Now, it puts out alpha particles, which are really weak at getting through stuff. But the problem is, is if you inhale it and then you got it right there in your lungs and then that exposes them. So, uh, yeah, you can say it's relatively safer and there's ways of measuring that even. But 
safe per se. I have to question that. <laughs> safe on a, a relative scale. Very relative <laughs> scale. That's right. You know, interesting. Yeah. Well, um, what are some other things you, I guess you've heard that, that, cause I, again, I just heard this perspective. I didn't uh-huh. even finish the episode. So are yeah. you aware of any other things that they may try and say, and do you have counter arguments well, to, to that? Or do you even have proponents of there? There's just a lot of pressure now to come up with solutions for global warming. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the pressure comes from folks that want, to basically preserve certain aspects of the present system, which are profitable for them. One of those aspects is centralized power plants that then feed into large distribution centers. Now you compare that to say solar, for instance, where you have the solar is mounted pretty much on the, whatever it is going to be using the power or very close to that, relatively speaking. And, uh, those things all have to be addressed eventually, but, it's one of those things where it's very much an interim solution, even assuming that it works, having nuclear power plants, because it kind of plugs in one form of centralized thing for another one, one that's in itself very problematic. Yeah. Um, it, 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 and some of the stuff that's used, excuse me, um, in these sources, one of them is cesium-137. Another one's coal, coal, excuse me, cobalt sixty, I believe it is, and both of them are relatively nasty substances. Sure, they're all nicely sealed up, and you know somebody comes around, checks it from the company that installs these things, and makes sure that it's all safe and stuff. But do they have like a little like a meter to make sure that they're not picking anything I'm up? Sure, they or, do. Or something uh, like that. What it is is the source itself will be in some shielding, mm. and the thing is, is it will lift up or move it the shielding out okay. of the way briefly. That will give you the exposure that you need to do what you need, and then it's closed back up. Mm. So the whole thing is on making sure that that mechanism doesn't allow any unanticipated exposures basically mm-hmm. it's a little bit like an x-ray machine but in reverse yeah in the sense of how the protection is meant to work uh but but these are really nasty substances uh so if if you usually they're sealed up enough that that's not so much the issue it's just you're supporting an industry that's very very dirty and do we really want to keep doing that when there's other means to achieve like just growing under cleaner conditions for instance yeah and <laughs> which is a big part of the whole remediation thing is, is it's a crutch right and i will i'm going to put a time stamp for this so that i remember that i show you this bit, uh, image but i saw this image the other day and i thought it was striking uh-huh. um it's a image of the united states and it shows you know which states use nuclear energy and illinois is one of the yes heaviest um before we get into that maybe uh uh, first of all i want to give you a little bit more room in case there were more arguments for slash against i thought maybe Uh before we got to where we are today that would set us up to to talk about the history of of nuclear energy but i guess i just wanted to give you more room on uh Uh arguments for and against that you've heard because i think it's important to to talk about those things you know well certainly remediation with with radiation is probably one of the 
better ways to approach a difficult subject. But my argument would be we're all probably better off if we just try to grow cleaner stuff to begin yeah. with. And it's interesting. I'm like um, definitely interested in talking about it in the context of cannabis, but I'm just kind of talking like nuclear energy yeah. in general. Um, you know, cause it's application in cannabis we've kind of talked about and right. we've even pointed to the companies that make that stuff so that people, but I feel like one thing that what's lacking, at least from my, uh-huh. you know, you could, I mean, I don't mean to say that it's not out there. You can't, that you can't figure this stuff out online, but right. I just, this conversation that I had heard was one of the first where it's about nuclear energy. So yeah, that's the idea in starting this. Uh, peaceful nuclear energy is that it was pretty much. restart that sentence i had it paused yeah you said the whole thing about the whole thing about nuclear energy peaceful nuclear energy is it was designed to sort of take people's minds off the, the whole problem with not so peaceful uses of nuclear energy mm-hmm. and a lot of this of course occurred during the the period post-war period basically from 1945 to 1963 so it's less than 20 years but in that time, we set off, trying to remember the numbers, something like 400 megatons, maybe more, of weapons yield. And that's in less than 20 years. Of course, if somebody had a war, you would have that much yield in this week, right. <laughs> for instance. So that's worth thinking about right there. Uh, but you got to consider, despite everything else that went on in the Cold War, after the Soviet Union acquired nuclear weapons in 1949, it was only 14 years later that we were sitting down and signing a treaty to say, we're not going to do this anymore, setting these things off in the atmosphere. Right. They didn't really explain why. People were just enthusiastic about the idea, but it had become quite controversial. And the thing was, is that it not only become controversial, what was popping up was evidence that what the Atomic Energy Commission was saying about it just wasn't going to be true, that it was a problem that was solvable, that, you know, it, 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 it wasn't a problem or, or however you want to define it. And they just sort of folded their house and said, we're going to do this underground, right. <laughs> which made people a lot less nervous. You still had the weapons coming out, but uh, the process itself wasn't contaminating things so bad. But, uh, you know, that happened in a very short period of time where we were otherwise pretty much at each other's throats. It's kind of amazing, which tells you that at least the science behind that was pretty good. Everybody's pretty convinced this is something we shouldn't do any longer, (laughs) no matter how bad, you know, we hated each other. We didn't hate each other enough to commit global suicide together. I think that's the big lesson about nuclear weapons is so far we've refrained from global suicide. Yeah. Uh, And and that's what you're going to have with any. And are you you saying that, like, we can't have nuclear energy without just because of the output being plutonium that you just can't have nuclear energy without a concern for nuclear weapons. Is that kind of, that's a pretty good way to sum it up because you will always be producing plutonium. If you do the purification of fuel that comes out of a reactor, whether it's a breeder reactor intended to produce as much plutonium as fast as possible, or just a standard power reactor where it's more of a, 
contaminant or whatever in the fuel because what happens is eventually the the power output of the fuel starts going down as the plutonium builds up in it so complex radiochemistry that uh, uh it's been a few years so i'm not going to dive into it but it, it is very complex and it's it's the sort of thing there you don't really have any choices you got to take the plutonium with the power that's produced it's like you have to take the iodine 131 with the energy that's released it's out there and there's no way to really get around it although for a while there in the 50s they kept trying to tell uh eisenhower oh well we're going to fix this fallout problem it just we just have to make a few tweaks to our design and we'll eventually overcome that it's still there there's nothing you can do about it except interesting so it went, it came to that it was like okay we can do this it, it all rests on the fallout which in other words for folks that aren't putting two and two together mm-hmm. the if something were to go wrong how long it would take for it to be inhabitable right is that well, kind of fallout is that fallout comes in different varieties there's like phases if yeah if you're close into a nuclear explosion you got local fallout that is like the heaviest thickest stuff because it like falls out pretty quickly because there's not that much keeping it up in the air so you have very intense local fallouts just downwind particularly under rain outs in other words where rain goes through the cloud and that carries it to the earth and really makes it intense but then you have longer range fallout also because with the big weapons they push the cloud the that mushroom plume into the stratosphere and once it's in the stratosphere it's kind of trapped up there a little bit i mean it's not trapped per se it's going to come down eventually it just takes longer but what it'll do is it'll drift around the world on a global basis and be more widespread wow uh so and there's varieties in between and it kind of depends on where you're at and which way the wind blows but if people in the u.s want to think about the easiest way to think about this as a problem is like where are all those missile silos at i don't know where are they they're in the midwest they're in like wyoming and north dakota south dakota what have you and they were even more extensively there before the end of the cold war but they're still there and the only way to really kill a missile silo is pretty much a direct hit yeah blow it up yeah with with contact with the earth anytime you do something like that you create the maximum conditions for fallout because <laughs> what you ideally want to do is have an air burst with nuclear weapons where it bursts up above the earth far enough that the fireball does not directly c- contact the ground that limits the creation of fallout and it spreads the heat and other effects as widely as possible based on the size of the bomb but that's not what you need to take out missile silos with them you need direct contact shots or even below grade uh, fused shots which will loft an enormous amount of dirt in the atmosphere which will blow which way to the east right over the most populated parts of the country so in a very real sense just just where that stuff is already is a problem it has been a problem for years now how the air force talked us all into that i don't well i do sort of know but <laughs> we can't talk about it <laughs> well that would be a whole or a whole, a okay. whole thing in a discussion in and of itself but yeah the air force you know claims well we need this stuff you know and well the only thing that nuclear weapons are really good for 
is deterrence. It discourages the other person from them using theirs on us. It's kind of like we're on other side, each side of the table, and I got a big red button, and you do yes. too. And it's like, ah, don't make me press this. Okay. Well, what's called mutually assured destruction, where we both think about, yeah, well, I could try getting it off on his targets, my targets at his side, and he'll probably hit me, vice versa, and that will go on until nobody can shoot anymore, I guess. Isn't it crazy that we're just one sociopath away from... The, uh... Yeah, and then for a while we weren't even actually that far away. <laughs> yeah, good <laughs> without, without getting yeah. too he, much. He had the football. Yeah, he had the football crazy enough as that is. Sorry about that, man. That's no problem. But uh, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, we're, we're, we're trusting a lot in human nature when we know we really shouldn't trust that much. I mean, that's why they quit setting them off in the atmosphere because people no longer saw a gain from that. We, we'd learned... Yeah, yeah, they're big and they're nasty. It is pretty remarkable, and I'm going to knock on wood here, though, that we haven't blown ourselves up yet. Well, I think the, the, the answer there is is mainly our focus has been on other people that have themselves nuclear weapons. Because the only people that get bombed with nuclear weapons are those that don't have nuclear weapons, which worries me a little bit about Ukraine. Because the Russians, they definitely have nuclear weapons. And the Ukrainians, well, they had nuclear weapons there at the Cold War. They, When the Soviet Union broke up, they got left several hundred nuclear weapons. But they said, yeah, get these things out of here. Send them back to the former Soviet Union, which wow. is probably a good move on their part. Because uh, on the other hand, Putin might never have attacked if they had held on to those weapons. So, right. I was going to ask. I mean, yeah. 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 It's, it's hard to it's say like about that. It's like back and forth on that one. Right. Right. Without getting too much into sure. current affairs. But it's a good place to point that out. That, yeah, that could happen. Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't think that this would ever happen, but it has happened. And, well, to get into the history, I guess, mm-hmm. since we've, I feel like we've pretty much talked about pros and cons yeah. pretty well. Um, I want to, I'm going to do a quick video to show the people what is in front of us. So I'll keep uh, it up here. Sure. And, um, I, I show this because it's not like you're a, uh, I think it would be accurate to call you a nerd for this subject, but <laughs> I hope you don't take that the wrong way. Um, <laughs> it, it's like. You've got the a love for it, folks. Like you see all this stuff. This is history here, and we can. I would love to hear you know you explain this for some of our listeners in a moment. Uh-huh. But I, I'm showing these things to show that. Um, I picture you sometimes standing next to like a a, a reactor, and maybe you appreciate <laughs> the 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 marvel of it. But you're like, it's not that this isn't impressive. It's that I see the peril it could cause yeah. if if things were to go wrong. Would that be accurate? Yeah, yeah, it would be. You know, it's not that these aren't modern marvels, and this is why you collect all these things. Yeah. It's not that you don't love, I guess. I love the topic, but I, I hate the idea of things going wrong. Let's put it yeah. this way, because they very rapidly can go wrong. Yeah. I mean, we saw that at Fukushima. saw that at Chernobyl. There's been some other accidents at reactors where... Maybe not as famous, but it doesn't take real long to have a heck of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Well said. So, um, well, hey, where do we want to start with, with history? And, I, and okay. just let me know when, uh, sure. when we want to reference documents, and I'll make sure to time it up with our recording yeah. over here. Well, I, I, this, this Tomboy soda bottle, I think, that you showed there, 
earlier is kind of a key starting point because yeah. this is from right after. I'm hold it for folks yeah, if you don't mind. Yeah, right after World War II. I mean, atomic weapons that quote unquote helped win the war. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why Tomboy was atomic. Maybe the waters were atomic. There used to be in the old days, a lot of spas had waters that were mildly radioactive and people sought that out. Nowadays, people supposedly still do, but more people tend to avoid things like that. Yeah. But, um, I I mean, you wouldn't think you'd use this as advertising Uh very far into the Cold War. By, say, 1955, saying it's atomic, people are not going to drink that. (laughs) Right. Because then you get to... The early 60s, I think, is this Ferenc soda yeah. bottle, which is uh, sort of a smaller brand from Pennsylvania, I believe it was. Yeah, Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And they're bragging that the water they use is fallout free. <laughs> right. And you, you guys can see it under the artesian water. It says free of fallout. Yeah, that's right. That's an advertising point. Yeah. But that's how much consumers had changed just in those few years, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and that had a lot to do with years in which they were developing the idea of peaceful nuclear energy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was peaceful, but it was also cost a lot of money to mine it and all that sort of thing, which the government always seemed to have deep pockets for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, yeah, uh, another good thing here that's kind of interesting is Oak Ridge. Now, Oak Ridge is one of the original plants in the Manhattan Project, and uh, it made uranium, basically. They separated uh, the, the good uranium, which is a very small portion of it, U-235, from the rest of it, which is U-238. And they used a little small difference in weight to sort it out in various ways. And... Uh, this is sort of a tourist postcard, you know, come on down. Yeah. And it's like nobody's, I mean, they, 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 they take some pride in their, you know, facilities and things like that. But it's also one of those things where, hey, you can go fishing and what have you and everything. So, yeah, I, I suppose, you know, you got great scenery, you know, good mm-hmm. climate and all that. And you got nukes. I don't know. What I'll else is... Show some more for the audience yes, if you don't mind. Yes, yes. Go right ahead. And even things that are familiar to us still as tourists, things like Merrimack Caverns. Well, they were advertised as a big fallout shelter in case you happen to be on vacation. And where, does it, where does it say that, by the way? Like, do you... Um, yeah, where does it say that? It's inside here, I yeah, think. Yeah, pull that up. I'm going to show that Let more visuals over here. here. Oh, yes, here it is. The Atomic... Whoops. Atomic Refuge. Nice. 21 miles of 20... 21 miles of the 26 miles of the natural passages in Merrimack Caverns will be used for shelter against bombing. Yeah, that's right. Very interesting. So get your ticket early. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before they your... fill up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a discussion a lot in the early 60s, because by then the whole idea that you had to do something about fallout had sort of settled in. And the civil defense people were pushing the idea that you should have a fallout shelter. And, I mean, it's different than a blast shelter. Blast shelter is sort of like the kind of bombing you did during World War II and you wanted to be in the basement so if something got hit, it would sort of be in between you. 
Yeah, if you were close enough for it to take you down, a, a nuclear weapon it doesn't much matter really. But when they did make noises, was when they were basically filling up with, uh, you know, water or whatever on the roof. Maybe I'm not making the most sense as I could with that sentence, but the whole idea being that you just need not explosive shelter, but shelter that gives you protection against the radiation. Mm -hmm. So dirt, concrete, things like that, as thick as possible, rather than just the brute strength of the shelter itself is what's important. But uh, let's see what else we got. There's lots of stuff put out. Oh, various ways where they advanced. Oh, yes. An atomic dime. Let's check this out. These were available. I think they first made them widely available at the 64 World's Fair in New York City. That one. Irradiated dime. Yeah. And, uh. They'd run it through a machine, and then it would package it nicely as a souvenir for you or whatever. If you measured it, I guess you could get enough energy suspected there. But got ours down at got ours down at uh, the uh, uh, Oak Ridge, Oak Ridge it's right there in front right. of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then there's Ready Kilowatt. Getting this timestamp again. The Mighty Adam. You've probably seen Reddy in several different forms. I mean, he's a guy that's around making sure that you. Oh, here's other dimes. What does Reddy Kilowatt do? He makes sure he's, that. He's, he's letting you know how cheap that new uh, atomic power is going to be. Oh. Uh, that was sort of his era, uh, advancing that for the electric co ops in rural areas and stuff. Gotcha. A couple of more dimes as they come out packaged. Oh, these are the irradiated dimes. Yeah, more of the irradiated. They had different forms. I think this big blue one was from the World's Fair itself. So they literally just run these dimes through an irradiation machine? Yeah, there's machine. like a machine, yeah, with, with a source in it. And so nowadays they run the weed through and then they run the dimes through. <laughs> Maybe I'm just joking. <laughs> Maybe that's what they do. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It kind of... It's funny. Yeah, it's 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 worrisome. It's... <laughs> <laughs> But here is something that's kind of special. Uh, but it, it shows you the experience that Americans had with nuclear energy because it oftentimes started off as a secret, which basically that's the pen that was given to everybody. There were go- uh, silver pens that were given to people with more than a year's worth of service, and then they had uh, brass or bronze pens for a year or less of service on the Manhattan Project. And it was a way of saying, yeah, I kind of worked on that. Now I can brag about it a little bit where I'm a pimp. But that's all I can say, basically, <laughs> what it was. And here is like a, this is a, some of the security that was involved. This is an S site. This is from Los Alamos. So some of these were like badges that uh, people wore that, you know, show that they were properly credentialed and all that stuff. Wow. Yeah. This is from Los Alamos? Yeah. Did you get this from a museum? eBay. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> Very, Very cool. cool stuff you can get on eBay. And, uh, oh, yeah. And then if you are in Vegas and you're feeling lucky. <laughs> what you got here? What is this? A Nevada, Nevada test site. <laughs> That's right. Interesting. It's a poker chip. 
buy as a souvenir, I guess. It's five dollars cool. worth, so it's not your your cheap stuff anymore. I just try to see anything. Anyway, that's mostly what. Oops, what's this here? 1945. What is this here? Oh, this is a uh, milk bottle cap. That was just a fun fact, apparently. That <laughs> 1945, the first atomic bomb used in World War dropped in Hiroshima by the United States. Of course, the irony of it being in milk is that's where the radiation shows up that got people really worried because that was the, the problem with I-131 is that it goes to your thyroid. And in kids, your thyroid is much more active, so you get a very much increased dose and exposure to the same amount of iodine, uh, radioactive iodine, than you do with adults. Interesting. Much more dangerous for children, and that's the really big problem, is is the, the levels of iodine will be such that you're going to wish your kid was locked up in a box somewhere for a few weeks, if not months. But, yeah, that's yeah. what's going on with that, is that since it does affect kids more, something that's very worrisome in that sense. <laughs> yeah. This is crazy to see uh, this little collection you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just these different aspects of, uh, of it. Let's see what else. Oh, and people did think of themselves as guinea pigs oftentimes. And this came specifically with people who were in the military that served at the various tests. <laughs> so here's a grand order of the guinea pigs. And of course, atomic veterans are still, you know, working to get yeah. recognition and compensation for what they went through. And I want to reiterate for folks that are listening at this point, this is the really video heavy part of the podcast. So That's if you're right. listening um, and you're noticing a lot of blank air, it's because we're showing things. So uh, showing history. Yeah. Here's. Uh... One second here. Get that matched up. This is from the Chrysler Corporation. Interesting. It's a Why Chrysler? Because they helped work on the bomb. So they gave him a little book after the fact. It's just called Secret. <laughs> <laughs> but it tells them basically what isn't secret that they can talk about and what have you and stuff and the basics of radiation and just all kinds of stuff. But that's one of the, one of the things. And then, of course, popular... Uh, culture then there's of course little abner of course may not be familiar to most of the younger kids here unless they're yeah, real I comic nerds but little abner was a, a regular comic strip in the regular paper but he also appeared in you know your standard comic books and stuff but there he is and he's learning all about all about stuff from civil defense what he's got to do to protect himself and what have you people in america people in america have always made use of civil defense even back in the days when the covered wagons were traveling west they learned that they could pl they could save lives by having a plan for survival that's right <laughs> they could save lives with defense interesting inauguration of mail service between New York and the Congo. Why is that important? Especially in 1941, Congo was where a lot of the 
uranium came from that wasn't from Western U.S. in Canada. Interesting. Yes, so they were just getting the service in down there at the time. Now, this one here. Speaking of milk. In uh, 57, I believe it was, in England, they had a meltdown of a reactor at Sellafield. Anyway, farmers were told that they had to dispose of their milk. And these were the official orders that came down from above. On... Then here's the removal of restriction on the use of milk. That was in late 57. But yeah, basically here's how to destroy your product because it's going to be dangerous. And here's another letter. Restrictions on the use of milk. This is 29 October. 29 October what? 1957. 1957, wow. Your farm is unfortunately in the area that is still restricted. The ministry regrets that the restriction on the use for human consumption of any milk produced on your farm must continue for the time being. But yeah, this was how they basically threatened people over the milk. They didn't want anybody getting out and getting drinking that anyway. Very interesting. Yes, very interesting. Another one of my eBay finds anyway. Yeah, I kept that all in one stack for you. Yeah. They, uh, that as well. Somebody saved it anyway. Yeah, it's amazing thought, to see that. Yeah, thought it would be. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> about <Siri>. that. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, my Siri, she has a tendency to do that sometimes. <laughs> oh, so what else do we have here? That I was, oh, meters. Yeah. Meters are something that. Whoops. Oh. Meters are something you got civilian meters, and you have well, like the CD ones, which are the familiar yellow ones. Oh, wow! Yeah, this one's got a strap on it to make it heavy carrying around, what have you. Anyway, these go up to about five rentkins per hour. Five rent, rent which, which which you don't really want to be in that for too long. Does, is this the thing that goes click 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 click, 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 click. that thing? It, it, it might. I don't know if this one makes noise or not, but it is one of one of several varieties of meters. Interesting. So that one goes to five. Then we have the military one, grade ones. Oh, wow, those got a freaking 500. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so you don't even want to be at five for how long, you said? Uh, not an extended period? Well, not what an do you extended mean by that? period. What do you mean extended period? Well, five is pretty much your all you would be allowed to be dosed with anyway, even under most 
ordinary circumstances. But yeah, anything above five, you're in trouble in a day. In a day. In a day. And that's per hour there. So theoretically, it could measure levels that are considerably above what's safe. This measures levels that are deadly even. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this, this shows you how just the kind of meters you have kind of defines what it is, how you think about nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was something that was interesting from the Chernobyl uh, documentary that I, re I do remember uh -huh. whether or not it was that's one of Oliver Stone's uh, claims was that it was uh, unduly dramatized. But one of the things that they <laughs> pointed out was that uh, they were like, well, the Geiger counter is only saying five or whatever it was. And they're like, yeah, well, that's yeah, exactly. It was at the top. And so they got a bigger one like you have. And it was reading at like some crazy fucking level. Yes. Yes. That's why you have to know your meter. Done. The thing, Legazov is wrong. How shall we prove it? Our high-range dosimeter just arrived. We could cover one of our trucks with lead shielding. Mount the dosimeter on the front. Have one of your men get as close to the fire as he can. Give him every bit of protection you have, but understand that even with lead shielding, it may not be enough. Then I'll do it myself. Through Rondkin. It's 15,000. Comrades Venus. What does that number mean? It means the core is open. It means the fire we're watching with our own eyes is giving off nearly twice the radiation released by the bomb in Hiroshima. And that's every single hour, hour after hour. 20 hours since the explosion, so 40 bombs worth by now. 48 more tomorrow. And it will not stop, not in a week, not in a month. It will burn and spread its poison until the entire continent is dead. These are first day covers. Canada emphasizing. What is this, a first these, day cover? A first day cover is oh, first day the first day that stamp was issued. And if they're done in conjunction with some special event, or in this case, atomic, peaceful atomic energy, that's what those are about there. Like That's I said, cool. they're pretty proud of their nuclear energy up in Canada because we got to remember back during World War II. The imagery looks so cool, so yeah, sciencey. Yeah, World War II, they were our partners along with the British. So the, they were right there with us when it came to actually producing this stuff. Oh, what was in here? Oh, this was a. Oh, this is the atomic marble gamma source from cobalt 60. Am I going to get cancer from visiting you today, buds? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. It's, I'm still alive. The glass marble was colored by exposure to gamma radiated from cobalt 60. Wow. Yeah, something to play with. Hartford Science Center? Apparently so, yeah. Is this another eBay? Uh, yes. Nice. Yes. Very yeah, cool. We could take it out. I'm not sure what what it amounts to. Maybe it'll float. Let's just see here. It says Pas Pasco, Washington, 
sort of a purplish marble. Yeah, but now your hand's turning black. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. joking. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. <laughs> starting to glow a little bit. Yeah, starting to glow. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Pasco, Washington. Of course, that's up there near Hanford, I think, so it might have been somebody who was an employee there or something or other. Oh, what else we got? Of course, then there's the Simpsons. Yeah, Speaking we, of popular culture. We got to show this Simpsons. Got to have the Simpsons there. So, it um, may or may not play if the button's pushed. It's so old, it probably won't. But. Well, what better time to try than now on the podcast? Let's see. Yeah, thank you for holding it. <laughs> okay. Press it again. Hey, it works. That's funny. I'm surprised it still works. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> it's got those nuclear batteries. That's probably true. <laughs> it's probably true. Oh, what have we got here? All kinds of stuff. I mean, it was quite... Oh, I don't want to uh, have you lose these if they were in a uh, envelope or something, were they? Just stack them in there. Okay, I, cool. I, I kind of got an idea where it all goes back. Sweet. Hopefully. Cool. If there was anything particular here. Corporation of Shelters into Schools. Wow. The Department of Defense. Yeah. So they would provide this to schools? Schools or uh, yeah, if they were thinking about building new schools, and then you would basically build. Here's sort of an illustration where you can see the ventilation. Oh yeah, it goes out into the yard, schoolyard somewhere there. Yeah, so folks, there's a ventilation where it shows the shelter under the school, but you can see air intake where it would let air into the um, like the shelter. Kind of interesting. Be good where we have tornadoes and school shootings too. I don't know. <laughs> Shelters could come in handy. Yeah, gotta let the the kids get some fresh air while they're waiting for the shooter to leave. Yeah, that's right. Lots of stuff about fallout shelters and those construction, but you know, really, in terms of how many people built fallout shelters, very, very few. Yeah, and I was, you know, we can get back to fallout shelters because we're looking at things, but uh -huh. I do think that that's one part of American culture that I wish was still around, but not born out of uh, paranoia, you know, or no, I don't mean to say paranoia. It was righteous, right? You know, because right, the whole right. freaking world could have blown up, but, um, and still can. But I, I just liked that it encouraged kind of, I felt like a grow your own society, a, yes. a jar your own, you know, a prepared. Well, that'd be a good place for your, uh, your grow room is down your fallout shelf. Bingo. That's right. <laughs> and that's the place where you'd want kind of to have some of those living conditions, uh, mimic sunlight, you know, wind, right. a little humidity, you know, cause if you're going to be down there, gosh, you're going to want some fake sunlight yeah. or something to keep you your home protection exercises. Interesting. Home protection. This is from, uh, this is slightly revised in July yeah. of 1960. Yeah, it was reprinted revised. in 1961. Yeah. Radioactive fallout on the farm. And this one here is a sort of a mea culpa about. So this is like, this would have been given by the USDA yeah, as yeah. like a, hey, in case uh, yeah. 
the shit hits the fan, this is what you farmers are going to yeah, need to know. That's right. Interesting. And here's, this is sort of a all-around coverage on Fallout. Let's set this There's down for several folks. Several different varieties. Nice, there. thank you. But, uh, some of these books came in several different editions is what it is, too. It the same basic information. Like, you know, that one got reprinted mm. in a certain time frame. But it's interesting to see what does change, if anything, over to... Here's Cadets of America. They've got a lot of... Of course, you can get all your, your, your guns and stuff, you know, oh, for nice. school. You know, there you go. Or whatever. But they have... Yeah, uh, I mean, it literally showed a kid on the back holding yeah, his gun. Yeah, that's right. And uh, they got a lot of stuff in here about arming yourself and building shelters. So <laughs> that's America right there, yeah, That's baby. right. That's right. That's right. So let me see that the back of that again, really yeah. quick. I like. I think yeah. that's cool. The the it's got a child, yeah, holding a rifle. Um, so they got the BB air rifles, but then they've got the real uh, looks like uh, shoots cork balls. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's not a real rifle. Shoots cork balls, just yes, like the yes. real thing. Yeah. I thought this was like like this is like how rugged America was <laughs> back in the day, just handing kids weapons. That's Damn. Right. Here's the Boy Scout manual from '65 for wow. atomic energy. Interesting. Then report on the Washington Conference of the National Women's Advisory Committee to the Atomic Energy Commission. I don't know, it looks like a lot of fine print, but at least women were being asked their opinion. Yeah, it was surprising for the year, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It was the 60s, right? right. 60s, 70s. Here's where it's like air raid stuff. You hear the certain signs. If you're at home and you hear the warning drop yeah. to the floor, get under your bed. If you're at work, oh, you got the different different situations to be prepared for. Yeah. Very interesting. Oh, the atomic philosophy. <laughs> what is this? Yes. What is this? Is this a bike? It's uh, advertising for a bike, yeah. It's atomic? Well, it's the atomic. It, it's sort of like... They were calling everything atomic. Just kind of a, a wink towards nuclear yeah. energy, I see. Yeah, immediate post-war. This is some sort of Boy Scout thing here. Oh, atomic pioneering. Here, Milwaukee Civil Defense Manual. A lot of these were like reprinted as a gimme sort of thing, so they reprinted slightly different in different communities. This one's ironically for Milwaukee, which was one of the keep hitting that thing i'm sorry oh it's okay no i'm adjusting uh, it the uh, they were some of the last holdouts in the, the city actually getting involved in civil defense because uh, frank what was his last name he's the last elected socialist mayor in a major u.s city he was up there through the end of 1960 i think it was Nuclear weapons employment. If you want to know what to do with your nuclear weapon. Yeah, let's see. That. Holy crap. Wow, this just looks ancient. Yeah, it should be from, what's it say, Feb February 63? Yeah, February of 1963. This is 
looks like something I would find in like a file on a movie where I like figure <laughs> out the secret. Like they were using element 113 to uh, as a source of propulsion. <laughs> Usually they don't get that specific. But you'd <laughs> right. be surprised. Sometimes they do. This thing's kind of cool too. Operator's manual for the area predictor. And what it is, it's a big grease pencil sheet that you would pencil in where the bomb hits. Wow. And then you would measure the drift and the relative uh, differences. <laughs> you go up to 300 kiloton bombs. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> I can't yeah. imagine having to actually use that to figure out things. I know. It's all pencil and paper back then. Mm hmm. Yeah, and the paper looked like this. Yes. <laughs> Here's the manual on it. It shows you how to even. Something else. Amazing what you can find on eBay. Yeah. No nuclear weapons, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> right? They really police themselves that well. No, I'm joking. Um. So what? Uh, finally getting down to the family fallout kit. The family fallout kit. Yeah. It's because you have his and hers dosimeters. His and hers dosimeters. What are dosimeters? Dosimeters measure your total dose, and then they can be re-zeroed. What do you, you What do you mean total dose? Like how much energy you have in you, or what? Uh, how much you've been exposed to. Mm. And you read it and charge it using this thing here. It's kind of. Let me see if I can get that down here. Okay. It's a little bit. Kind of got to point it at the light and line it up correctly, because then you'll wow. see where how it. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna try to do this with the camera. It might be hard, but let's see. Okay, so you see I'm holding, this is the dosimeter? Yeah, dosimeter. Okay, so I'm holding the dosimeter. And when you look through it, which I'm gonna cut here in a moment, you'll be able to see through the dosimeter. So, you can get that. This one, I can see through it. And this measures up to 500. So this is like the long range one. And then the other one's a shorter ranging one. Except I don't see the little hair. Which is a good thing. Little hair Might be able to find a Google image for that. It was kind of hard to see. Yeah, you probably will have to. I'm guessing anyway. Putting it in there, and then you can adjust the scale and what have you. So, not. say that this thing charges the dosimeter. Well, what it does is it resets it. Oh, uh, resets it. Yeah, it's probably resets the charge. Is what you were maybe saying. Um, well, it zeroes it out. Really, zeroes it out. Gotcha. Technically, I see. But you put it in there, and then it has batteries that. Uh, Where do you put it? Oh, you maybe this this thing come yeah. off. And then you pop Let it in there. get that off of there and see what the batteries are like. I didn't mean to put it away with batteries in it. Maybe in bad shape. Because <laughs> it takes just one battery. 
this is the inside of that yes what was this device called again it was this the charger is, this is called a it says on oh, i guess yeah dosimeter rate meter charger Very interesting. Yeah. It's a big ass battery that would have gone in there. Yeah. Look at this. I mean, I don't have big hands, folks, but look at that in the size of, uh, compared to my hand. Big battery. Yeah. Big ass components, too, electronic wise. You got a transistor and some capacitors and a few other things. Not much to it. Oh. Not much to it at all. Oh, that's interesting. They got like little poster. So this is for uh, self-help and uh, neighbor help. Yeah, medical instructions for what to do. The atomic bomb causes no new or mysterious illness, which is illness, which is, I don't know if that's true, but radiation (laughs) illness will affect some, but they need little emergency care during the first 24 hours most of the injured blah 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 so very interesting yeah don't worry about it it'll be okay yeah Everything you'll be, be fine okay. there's nothing to worry about but That's just right. we made this entire book though just That's in case. right. <laughs> well yeah i just want to say again dude this has been uh like a lot of fun to work through or look through this stuff do you have more sh- to show me um i mean you do i know you do but yeah anything, I mean, anything else particularly yeah sure hope we wouldn't get operated by Norfolk Southern anyway. <laughs> so we're looking at a railway progress. What did you say this was going to be? Well, the they were hoping, they were hoping it would be a no- that You could put like a small reactor on board locomotive and supply your power. Yeah. But I'm not so sure if that's a good idea or not as a railroader. <laughs> well, especially given to your point. So just for context, folks, it is, I, I've all have put it earlier in the episode, but it's June 5th. And so you're, you're maybe referring to what happened in Ohio recently with a huge train derailment. Yes. Yeah. Maybe that wouldn't be such a great idea if there were nuclear uh, materials on yeah. the train. Let's take a look at this. That's decontaminating a sampler after a test in Nevada. What is a sampler? Is that the, the, That's the, the plane and plane? it goes in and catches hot samples from the explosion and they bring them back to do radiochemical tests on it to see how efficient the bomb was whether it worked the way it was intended there's a lot of different things depending mm-hmm. on the samples they create and stuff <laughs> but uh, just one example of many yeah. official photographs anyway that you can come across from here and there and in fact at the end of the wings, those pods, that's your sampler pods. One second here, I want to get that. Yeah. So this pod here yeah. is the sampler pod. It's kind of cool. You can see the uh, radioactive, uh, there's a little radioactive sign <laughs> on the runway. Caution, radiation. No need to worry. Just We'll keep hosing it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, interesting stuff. Postal first day cover image. So what's this again? You said a limited nuclear test ban treaty. Yes. Uh, the anniversary of it, apparently. Interesting. I think this was it was originally signed in '63. Yes. 
very clear if you go back and look at for me you said you said uh the yeah uh, the whole atoms for peace program which was the international peaceful applications of nuclear power that was promoted by the u.s was very much a conscious counterweight to the concerns globally expressed about fallout from nuclear weapons and from testing itself yeah and uh you know it's that that's the beginnings of this program and um in a lot of ways, it hasn't gotten that far from the tree yet, anyway. <laughs> yeah. If you think about it. With these sorts of things. So it may not have been atomic. So what, say that again? This was, I think, World War II. So we're talking conventional bombing. Very interesting. But it may have... Uh, what is that supposed to mean, block mother here? Well, that's that's... Somebody will be here in case... They start bombing everybody else's at work. We need somebody to go to. Oh, so that's like the mom. Yeah. Huh. Oh, is it so like because it was so involved in the culture, it was like, hey, yes. this is the block mother. She's going to take care of it. Yeah. Interesting. You have various things from Atomic Energy Commission. Neutron activation analysis, accelerators. Yeah, and I actually wanted to talk to you about accelerators. I think that'll be a good topic to close on. <laughs> Particle accelerators. Yeah. Talk to Jesus on the atomic telephone. Spirit of Memphis Quartet. That sounds like a threat. Yeah. I feel I like know. you could say that. To I may somebody. have that on a on a record back in there somewhere i just got a note about it there interesting it seems like you would say that to somebody over the phone like hey do yeah. you want to talk to jesus on the atomic telephone because yeah. i'll send a few blasts your way <laughs> yeah. Yeah, power reactors and small packages atomic power safety i hope you appreciate my lame attempts at humor yeah, buds that's okay <laughs> you're doing your best <laughs> Hell yeah. Underground installation sites and geological formations. So that's probably from digging holes, putting fallout shelters in. Interesting. And can I, I want to ask you, how long have you been collecting this stuff? About 2000. Cool. This is like a full complete kit that the guy wrote in. W. Gardner learning how to run the meters and stuff. Kept up this whole book. Very interesting. Together on that. Not sure whether it's about fallout shelters or just some crazy stuff, I don't know. And I, I don't know if you answered the question, why do you collect this stuff? Uh, well, it's because it's my research. Okay. And uh, it kept me up at night when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> but check this out. This is a Boy Scouts thing from Los Alamos, I think it is. Wow. Los Alamos is something else I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. It's crazy. 
So we're looking at. No, worse for wear. That's commercial, and then this is the actual GI issue. So this is. Bottled water. Bottled water. Canned water. Is there still water in here? Yes. New Jersey. This is a Vaseline. Oh. Might need that. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. Now, is this like is this packaged a certain yeah, way? Yeah, silver fence is what it is. Okay. You got all kinds of stuff that was basically set around a long time and then people ended up Yo, uh, what's funny is like somebody watching this is probably just gonna be absolutely nerding out at some of the stuff that you have liquor liquor up here cold chaser down here yeah <laughs> oh i see atomic mixer yes nice nuclear war the game for all ages. It will be. It's a game. When it happens. <laughs> for all ages, Oh, the Camp Hanford Officers Mass. Except for Washington State. Camp Hanford Officers Mass. So what is this supposed to be? Like well, Hanford Reservation is where they made the plutonium up in Washington State. Oh yeah, we had another pamphlet over here that referenced yeah. it, I thought. Yeah. That's what it's going to You said this sold for what? $900. You bought this for $900? No, I bought it for list price, which was oh. about 30 bucks when it came out. Okay. But uh, uh, Chuck died, and uh, his... Uh, Survivors finished putting together his electronic version, which they sell for 300 bucks now. But it's a much expanded edition of this. Gotcha. But the book itself, of course, is still kind of collectible. Here's, here's another one that's kind of collectible. I'm going to return to the bathroom for a few. Yeah, Operation Sandstone. Yeah, it's one of the early test series. And of course, the test series were interesting to me because... They had to figure out nuclear intelligence somehow. Right. So they had that as a test. All right. Well, just to wrap up, my friend, I wanted to ask you just two other topics. Just, I'm curious, are you, uh, are did you read about the most recent fusion breakthrough? You made me think of it when you brought up the park particle collider. I'm not going to pretend mm. to understand it right now, but do you? This the, the, <laughs> the cold fusion thing. I, uh, from what I understand, and I did talk to somebody who does uh -huh. know a little bit about it. Did you know Mike Fouché used to work at the Department of Energy from Grown In, uh, the reporter? No, you know I, 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 I know I know who you're talking about, but no, did not know that. I'll have to tell you need to check out my most recent episode of oh, Mike yeah. Fouché. And okay. he actually currently, uh, he, he's not doing cannabis reporting anymore. He's uh -huh. got a new publication called Rising Points, I think. Uh-huh. And he's talking about uh, not only nuclear energy, but climate and, uh, and everything else. Uh -huh, so uh -huh. I'd be interested. But so we had talked just a little bit and he knew much more than me. He was like saying how it's like basically a bunch of lasers pointed at a diamond. Yes. And oh, yeah. The self-sustaining reaction. Supposedly for the first time, it, it reached yeah. the breakover point. Right. Um, 
it's important. But Give people some background, please, from your perspective. Yeah, like, what well, are we talking about? What it is with fission takes place in reactors in tubes that are encased in shielding, and then you move the tubes closer or farther apart to get the fission reaction going, and it's all sort of slow motion to a certain degree. I mean, for, for atomic power purposes anyway, it's slow motion relative to fusion, where they try to, instead of breaking atoms apart, they try to meld them together to create that energy. And that's what fusion does. The problem is, is getting that stuff in the right spot where it can get hot enough, quick enough for this to sustain a reaction. And what the breakthrough was about was for the first time, they very briefly, probably in terms of microseconds, had a reaction going that put out more energy than was put into it right. to get it to happen. The trick here is is extending that so it's continuous and controllable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they've still got a long, long way to go. But The to, fact that they did it is a yeah. breakthrough. Is yeah, that what the breakthrough is? It shows that it's possible. Interesting. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a long, long way from taking home the check from yeah. your lawyer about patenting it or anything. Yeah. And is there any date like I, it's hard for me to relate these concepts, yeah. but is there danger? So I know you're saying you have to keep it under control, but right. is there the same danger concerns is, is that, does it output plutonium? No, no. no. Uh, with fusion, it is a relatively much cleaner process. And obviously depending upon how you rig it up, it could be more or less military oriented in that sense, but you really can't take it too small because it's got to have a certain area within all this stuff works within mm -hmm. and you can't really carry it around because the huge machinery that's required because basically you have to have like multiple lasers from multiple different directions all pushing inward to a certain point and that's very very hard to do and keep it controllable and on point yeah uh, just very, very challenging work. And they've been at it now for 70 years, something like this, because all this was theorized and dreamt up, and they got to the bomb part of it pretty quick and easy. The rest of it's yeah. been a lot more difficult. Yeah. Um, well, my last topic has to do with Los Alamos, probably mm. not the direction you were thinking in. This is the direction if we had a bunch of smoke in the room and there was a haze, <laughs> you would expect this from me. Uh -huh. um, but... What I'll just start it off this way. What do you think about UFOs? Try not to do a spit take. <laughs> I actually concede there probably are UFOs. I I I I wouldn't rule them out. Let's put it this way. Yeah. And I have seen what I believed was a UFO. <laughs> Tell me about it. This was in 1967. And we're going on vacation from Texas up to, we're going to Colorado, and then we're going on up to Yellowstone and Grand Tetons, and then back. And uh, we're in northern New Mexico, and it's like after the first day, and I'm riding in the front seat. I think my sister was next to me. This is a 64 Bel Air station wagon, so you had bench seats, and Dad was driving. And I'm like looking around. And all of a sudden, I saw this silvery egg-shaped object moving. And the moves were too fast, 
too sharp, you know, to really be executed by humans, but they were in the category of, yeah, they can do that. Um, so I don't know if it was real or not. Nobody else ever called it or anything. That Nobody day, saw it? Except me. Except you. Yeah. And uh, Did so, you say something to people, though? Like, oh, did you just see that? Uh, I'm trying to gauge. After I thought about it for oh, a couple okay. of minutes, we were driving along. Of course, some vacation is a long drive, and finally I said something about it when it didn't return. Yeah. Because I thought, well, it's just gone off to the side or something. But no, it went entirely away. So. Would you describe its movement? It's funny. You got people don't know, but maybe if yeah. they heard the bell re- ringing earlier, they uh, heard yeah. cats. There's the cat. Uh, would uh-huh. you describe it as like a laser on a wall? Kind of, you know, it's like una, una, un, it's unaffected by the physics around it. It can make sharp turns. The sharp turns yeah. is, is what it is because the G-forces would be so high yeah, that like, they could be deadly to a human. Because humans would take up to about eight or nine with training and the right equipment. And uh, but with these, it, it'd be able to hold entirely out of the track without too big a deal. As they began their descent, they noticed a white capsule-shaped craft moving erratically above the disturbance. At first, they thought it could be a helicopter, but there were no rotor blades. In fact, it was perfectly smooth. No markings, no exhaust, no protrusions of any kind. The UFO appeared to maintain a consistent altitude, but made rapid lateral movements with no visible means of propulsion. According to Fravor, it was a bit smaller than an F-18 and resembled a giant mint of Tic Tac. As Fravor continued to descend, his wingman decided to maintain altitude and kept watching from above. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, thank you for humoring me on that. Any other? Th- I know uh, we're, we're wrapping up here. I'm just yes. curious. Any other thoughts on UFOs? UFOs. Well, hopefully they're peaceful. They, <laughs> right. they, they seem to so far not wanting to get involved with. <laughs> have, what about the theory? Earthly. Have you heard the theory that we uh, saw UFOs when we started to to get into nuclear energy? And just to, to continue uh, and complete well, the theory. Well, there's the whole Roswell thing. Is kind of where a lot of that came from. Well, to complete the theory that uh-huh. I had heard. Uh, it's like maybe this is some advanced form yeah. of life form that's like, oh, the monkeys just figured out how to do yeah. nuclear stuff. Maybe we need I've to watch that. I've heard that as one theory. Yeah? I, I think really what we got is that people have gotten too crowded together. And there's a couple spots there where they were just not quite so sharply turning or whatever. It probably worked better. But, yeah, I'm, I think a lot of that comes from Roswell. And Roswell has some specific issues that, it, first of all, it was part of something called Project Mogul. Uh-huh. And Mogul was a, a system designed to... The Navy had discovered that there are channels in the ocean where the, the salt content, the various things, whatever, anyway, it would transmit sounds very long distances, like hundreds of miles and stuff, where ordinarily it would only be a few miles. So they wanted to apply this to detection of nuclear explosions in the atmosphere. Problem is you had to have a balloon or you had to have something that would hold the microphone recording equipment, whatever, at certain altitudes so that it would pick up that signal. And uh, they, they modified one to do this. It went in and it got basically sunk. <laughs> yeah. It just, it just was too heavy or something anyway. But the whole thing was that... Uh, they 
wanted to get the sensor at a certain altitude and hold it there. But even in a balloon, that's hard to do. And uh, for that period in the late 40s, it was almost impossible for planes to do it because it was above the altitude that your reciprocating engine planes could typically fly at. Yeah. It, but it was more like the altitude that eventually the U-2 became flying at and several other lesser ones that uh, came along afterwards. So, yeah, I, I mean, there's some idea that it's associated, but I think it's, no, nah, it's just because there's secrets and whatever. She wanted in there to get the secrets. And... Yeah, and I, I have to wonder, I guess, this is my last like kind of angle on this. Mm -hmm. It just seems like, so there was a while where it was very like convincing and kind of fun. That's, that's the dangerous part that a lot of people acknowledge about this idea is that it's almost so fun to believe in that you want it to be true. So you can have like a little bit of confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. But I guess what I just wonder now that it seems like the government is like owning it. I don't know if you've noticed that, but they're like, they've come out and they're like, yeah, oh, we don't know what the these Navy, things the are. Navy. Yeah. And like, Guys. there's plenty of pilots. And I just feel like it's our way of like saying we don't know, but it's maybe just like some really high tech drone or something that yeah. we have. That's I, been I think it's probably more likely they've just gotten stuff wound up in things without having to test them or anything really. Yeah. Or being allowed to test them part of, part of the problem these days. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know other than I would expect Spain not to be too far off on like some places. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, they, they probably have the testing labs and stuff to be accurate and everything like that. and would stick to that much accuracy. Whereas, there's other folks where who knows about their labs and <laughs> testing what, um, what we were just talking about. I'm sorry. I'm drawing a blank. No, here. it's okay. UFOs. <laughs> UFOs. I, right. Like they would test the data like that was collected well, or something. Or? Yeah. If there was anything to be collected, I mean, supposedly Roswell, they collected, sure. you know, stuff, but my feelings based on what I've seen of stuff supposedly collected there was that it was, they were just not wanting to tell the cover story. And what it was, was most of the stuff to do with nuclear intelligence had mm. multiple cover stories. They had the easy ones if you just need to kind of get somebody out of the way. Then they had ones that got increasingly complicated for when you're dealing with somebody that also has a high security classification, but isn't cleared for what you're talking about. And a good example is the Roswell thing, because the investigators were from the 509th which was the group that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they were like the, the lead squadron in uh, a strategic air command at the time, which was yeah. very poorly organized, but they were the, the hot guys, okay? And when they kind of looked it over and came up with no conclusion, you know, or maybe, you know, some other aircraft or something <laughs> that didn't quite make sense, it was like, well, yeah, I can't argue with that because they ought to know, you know, but the thing is, is, they didn't know. They didn't have clearance for anything to do with nuclear intelligence. So I'm pretty sure they knew nothing about Project Mogul and whatever debris that was brought in. It might have looked incriminating, I suppose. But yeah, assuming it was all, you know, from that same crash. Yeah, it was just stuff that was floating by, but didn't get taken down. Cool. Well, hey, man, I want to thank you for your time today. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'll leave you with this. I want to give you the last word. Uh-huh. 
with cannabis, with nuclear energy, and I know these are two vastly different subjects, yeah. but what do you, like, this is history right now. I don't know if you realize, but we're, what we're putting is, is on the record and maybe a yeah. hundred years from now, a kid will see this tape. Oh, <laughs> this episode between Cole Preston and Buds. Yeah. And they'll be, what do you hope that, that will have changed by the time this theoretical child is listening to, back to this oh, tape? hundred years. Who knows? I so, hope we've finally all recognize that nuclear weapons aren't of much use and maybe you've gotten rid of them although some people like to mow the yard so much who knows (laughs) I guess (laughs) (laughs) I hate mowing the yard but I've been doing it for 60 some years so I just as soon get it squared away so I can mow the yard and not have to worry about it have a nice peaceful future but uh, yeah uh, the thing is, is you have to be realistic about these things too. Other people have these such weapons and we've shown a propensity to use them and others have shown some propensity to use them too. Just haven't yet. And it'll probably be on somebody who doesn't have nuclear weapons because that's how you win a war, nuclear war. You bomb the guy that doesn't have nuclear weapons. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, they can't fight back, even if they should. And then with cannabis... What do you hope the future looks like with that? Yeah. Because we're not in a... I mean, we're better. Right. I mean, it'd be, we'd be remiss to not acknowledge it's a better, but that's yeah. not saying much considering well, the penalties I hope that still exist. in 100 years, even though there's no immediate signs of this thing really getting turned around and fixed. I mean, the, the session proposal falling apart the last minute there. Right. <clears throat> last week was probably a good sign, personally. <laughs> I agree. I, awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's just... Legislation that keeps going in there, and only the folks at Big Weed benefit. People have got to start asking questions. Is this program here a you know subsidized thing to make them rich? They don't need help getting rich. They're rich already. If they need to get help, give it to somebody that needs the help, and uh, you know let 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 the rich struggle on their own. That's <laughs> all I can say. They'll make it. They'll be okay. Yeah. And uh, but I hope everybody can just grow their own and have the right to do that and can do that if they want to. And uh, it's, it's just much better for us. Let's put that. Yeah. Well said, buds. Well, I think that's a good place to end it, folks. Okay. I hope you found as much value in this conversation as I did. We'll see you in the next episode. Take okay. care.